my seats five big size up. Put the gun seats four. Self destruction, raise the city, murder rate. Welcome back to Shy One on a Radio. Uh, I'm your guest host, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald, from the podcast Knife at the Gunfight. Uh, and we got a great show today with Anthony Fenton from York University in Canada discussing his area of expertise, which is Saudi and Canadian relations and the recent fallout, as well as the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Uh, after that, we'll have the Baltimore Club queen, T.T. the Artist, discussing her upcoming movie, Dark City Beneath the Beat. And you may have heard uh, some of her music on the most recent episode of Insecure on HBO. So we got a lot to do today. Let's get it. Self-destruction, raise the city, murder rate Hate turned this place to a straight murder state Praying cause the bullets got no names With them shots go bang Through the top of your brain Got the headline saying Innocent got slain This is real insane This is not real lame Man, my the D got smoked Can you feel the grief? Uh, welcome back to The Knife at the Gunfight Standing in for uh, Shaiwanana Radio On WPFW I'm here with Anthony Fenton, uh, calling uh, from Canada. Anthony, how are you doing? Pretty good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. I wanted to talk to you today about uh, your area of expertise, which is the Gulf countries and specifically Canada's relation to Saudi Arabia. And, uh, you know, I happened to be in Montreal, and there was a lot on the news about a sort of breakdown in Saudi and Canadian relations, but it was really all the coverage about sort of the economic fallout of that and very little about what actually was the spark in, in this. Can you speak to that briefly? Like, what happened that blew up Saudi-Canadian relations? The assumption that, that everyone's making is that this stemmed from a series of tweets, initially from Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, uh, Christia Freeland, uh, expressing concern over the arrest of uh, the sister of Raif Badawi, who's a Saudi Arabian, a liberal Saudi Arabian activist who was arrested and imprisoned in 2012 for basically saying publicly what now uh, the Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, has been saying about you know reform, the need to reform Saudi Arabia, the need to change the status of women inside Saudi Arabia are heavily oppressed. And basically, he was charged with apostasy, and but he was embraced by Canada because his wife and children fled to Canada when they faced some threats inside of Saudi Arabia uh, subsequent to his arrest. And so Canada's kind of in the, the home base for them. Uh, they, re- they actually were granted citizenship about a month ago. So Canadian, a number of Canadian high-level political figures and NGOs and so forth have been speaking out and calling for Rais Badawi's release. And then when his sister was swept up in a recent crackdown following you know, what seemed to be uh, the reform reform movement inside Saudi Arabia, led by MBS, for, for example, uh, granting women the right to drive. Uh, some of the very women's rights activists who had been campaigning for the right to drive were uh, arrested, and uh, Badawi's sister was one of them. So Freeland tweeted this on August 3rd. There was nothing new about the tweet. You know, Canadian ministers, high-level ministers, going back to previous governments, since Badawi was arrested originally, have called for his release publicly. They've denounced Saudi Arabia publicly. And so it's kind of odd that when uh, two days later, the Canadian Foreign Affairs Twitter account uh, similarly tweeted it, but added added the words, uh, must immediately release. And then some, some are saying that it wasn't even that the English Canadian Foreign Affairs Twitter account tweet that offended the Saudis, but uh, that it was the Arabic account of the Canadian embassy in, in Saudi Arabia. Uh, that they had, that they dared to circulate in Arabic this call for the immediate release of uh, these, these, her and uh, Badawi and other activists who've been swept up in recent crackdowns. And so 
whether or not that was the actual impetus, maybe it was a straw that broke the back of the Saudi regime and compelled them to to take these sort of extraordinary actions. You know, uh, they immediately uh, declared Canadian ambassador in Saudi Arabia persona non grata. They recalled their ambassador from uh, Ottawa back to Saudi Arabia. They canceled any new transactions. Of course, and all the other dramatic move was the uh, the recall of some upwards of 15,000 uh, Saudi Arabian students and doctors who were inside of Canada, canceled the Saudi Airlines uh, flights to Canada. But in addition to that, there's this pall that's being cast over other major deals, such as the light armored vehicle sale to the Saudi Arabian National Guard. Many people inside Canada have been calling for this to be canceled, that it should have never have happened in the first place. Here you have this Trudeau government, Justin Trudeau, Canadian Prime Minister, who had declared its feminist foreign policy, and he's had a press conference a few days after this blow-up happened, where he declared that we're going to stand behind our comments, we'll always be willing to speak out against human rights abuses, etc. Meanwhile, they very willingly and happily signed off on the on the export permits for these some 900 armored, heavily armored, weaponized vehicles that are going to be going to the Saudi Arabian National Guard. Um, 900 in addition to over 2,000 that Canada sold them since the 1980s, and that the Saudi Arabians are deploying in Yemen today, and that they've deployed internally. And also in Bahrain, uh, it's reported that they use them to help suppress protests back in 2011. And that kind of that sums up where, how it kicked off. So much, you know, you mentioned how busy, how much coverage you saw when you were in Montreal. This is an unprecedented amount of media coverage of this relationship. It's almost hard to believe how it's unfolded. Globally, you've seen commentary from virtually every major news outlet. And it's continuing now. Now we're on the eighth day since the crisis exploded uh, without an end in sight so far. And this all happened right on the heels, if not at the same time, that there was a a bombing led by the Saudi coalition of a school bus full of children in Yemen that killed numerous children on top of the the daily toll of famine and violence in the Saudi-led war in Yemen. Uh, But, you know, I think a lot of Americans think of Canada as sort of our better-behaved, more peaceful little brother to the north. How significant is Canadian-Saudi relations to the ongoing war in Yemen? On the whole, of course, you have to look at these sort of in relative terms. And you're, it's great that you pointed out how there was a bo- there was this bombing just the other day. 29 school children were targeted by a Saudi Air Force. Uh, presumably, it could also be the UAE Air Force. And you know, you've got U.S. jet refueling these Saudi bombers that are that are bombarding on a regular basis uh, Yemen and have been for almost three and a half years. And the U.S. providing various other uh, degrees of direct support for the, uh, the Saudi-led coalition in this war. Uh, Canadian role, it's a little bit different. I mentioned already the light armored vehicles. They're all over, dotting the landscape, mainly in the border region. A lot of the fighting in, in Yemen is happening either on the Saudi side or just on the in, inside of Yemen, where we've seen dozens of other Canadian armored vehicles, which haven't even been reported on in the Canadian media, not a single occasion. There's a, there's a company called Street Armored Group, for example, there's a Russian Canadian of Russian descent who has a headquarters in Canada, but decided in the mid 2000s, in the midst of the war on terror, the war in Iraq and Afghanistan, that he should build a manufacturing facility in the Middle East so that he can supply these wars, you know, with with efficiency. Um, and that armored vehicle complex has grown into the world's largest private armored vehicle manufacturing facility. Uh, and it's in Ras al Khaimah, uh, United Arab Emirates. And since 2016, I began seeing images circulating of like dozens, fleets and fleets of these Canadian made armored vehicles being um, purchased, as I understand it, from Saudi Arabia and then given to either like Sudanese forces who are, who are there 
essentially they're mercenary forces on the ground fighting in Yemen, given to Yemeni forces and some used by Saudi army as well. We've seen dozens of these uh, in combat, in the, in mostly in the videos that the, the Houthi, the Yemeni rebels post themselves. They post uh, a lot of their battle footage on YouTube and you see dotted in the landscape, a lot of these Canadian armed vehicles being destroyed. But even broader than that, you know, you've got a number of other defense Canadian weapons companies or, or that are linked to the weapons industry. Like there's one in Ontario called Westcam, and they make these targeting pods that are put onto like Apache helicopters that are used on, for drones. And they've got, they've got offices inside of Saudi Arabia. So the, and there's numerous other examples I could cite, but there are the reverberations uh, amongst all these companies that are kind of on the ground, either inside Saudi Arabia or even in the United Arab Emirates, sort of servicing Saudi Arabia. They're very concerned about what's going on right now with this crisis because they don't want their bottom line, these relationships that they formed with key figures. And that's always the case that if you want, if you want a contract inside of Saudi Arabia, you kind of got to cozy up to the, the member of the royal family who knows the guy in charge of procurement for the ministry of whatever security apparatus. And that's kind of where we're at. But a lot of that isn't being discussed in the Canadian media. They're kind of focusing, like you said, on these sort of broader questions of, you know, how, what are the, the broader economic impacts? And a lot of that's being downplayed because the reality is, as an overall trade partner, you know, the, the statistics aren't all that high, right? Of course, like Canada and the U.S., they trade more in a day or two than Canada and Saudi Arabia do in an entire year. But what the, the point that they're missing is that there is a long history, significant history between Canadian ruling class and the Saudi ruling family. And it's that which I would imagine frantic meetings are being held, phone calls are being made at very high levels between, you know, CEOs are very close to it and the Canadian um, federal government in an attempt to stomp out this crisis and restore relations with Saudi Arabia as quickly as possible and move you know, full steam ahead in the same direction they were going uh, before this happened. It seemed to me that uh, Mohammed bin Salman or whoever was propagating this crisis was kind of doing all of us a favor by bringing attention to what's been going on, for example, in Yemen, or at least the opportunity to draw attention to global international scale of this really unending crisis in Yemen. Do you see that happening at all, that this attention turning towards what is actually Canada's role in supporting Saudi's war in Yemen? You know, I, I wish I could say that I, I, I do see that. In fact, it's to the contrary, you know, it's interesting because on the one hand, there has been a little bit more reportage in Canada. So, for example, they circulated like U.S. wire stories about the bombing of the children the other day. But there was one report, quite disturbing, CTV, the national news broadcast in Canada, millions of people would have potentially seen this broadcast. The anchor says, we, although we can't confirm it, there's believe that Canadian armored vehicles may be uh, at use in Saudi in the in the Saudi led war in Yemen. And she's making this comment as though like it's not widely known that these light armor vehicles are all over the place in Yemen. Like there's footage, there's images. I've I've tweeted about them, you know, live tweeted about them for several years. But like the Canadian media by and large has like studiously avoided digging into the Canadian role in Yemen or the, or the presence of these armed vehicles or the sniper rifles that Canadian uh, company has sold to the Saudi border guard and Saudi, Saudi army. So no, unfortunately, like this is exactly an opportunity, as you said, that would seem to provide an opening for this kind of analysis, but so far yielded virtually nothing. And But I, I can tell you, I've had conversations with journalists from like almost every major Canadian uh, news outlet and I've described some of these same things 
provided them with documents and you know screenshots, endless amounts. And I said, I have more and I can send more if you want them, but none of them want to touch this issue. And it's, it's inconceivable that they wouldn't. But at the same time, if you see how the corporate media tends to operate, it's almost like a rally around the flag moment in many ways. As much as you're seeing like the journalists doing what you kind of hope they'd be doing all along, all in a week span, like literally hundreds of articles are being written. But they're mostly looking at the minutia of like this student issue and some of the broader economic issues, because there are also a lot of other Canadian companies that have deep, long-standing interests in Saudi Arabia and ties to the Saudi royal family. But but no, Yemen is still, for whatever reason, kind of a no-go area. Hopefully something will happen to break through. Do you see a resolution of this kind of crisis that's going to restore Canadian military collaboration with Saudi Arabia? Or do you think that those military exports will be uh, interrupted longer term? Well, as far as I know, there there are Canadian light armor vehicles currently sitting in, a, in storage at, a, at the port in uh, New Brunswick. Interestingly, this, a few weeks ago, Saudi Arabia had actually canceled the regular port of call that would have come in uh, today, actually today or tomorrow, to pick up those light armor vehicles. Somehow, two weeks before this crisis already erupted, they knew that they didn't want a ship coming into Canadian port at this this week, and they postponed it until next month. But there is no indication at this point that these uh, exports will be will be cancelled or postponed. In fact, uh, the Saudis went out of their way last week to reassure Canada that the flow of Saudi oil to Canadian uh, East Coast, uh, this has been a, a, a long-standing agreement between the uh, the billionaire Irving family on Canada's East Coast. Before that, it was the, the U.S. companies that owned all the refineries in Canada that they would import Middle Eastern oil, specifically Saudi and Kuwaiti oil, going back to the 1950s. But they've reassured that that oil will continue to flow, that it's that whatever degree of disruption we're seeing due to this crisis, it's not to that level where they're willing to cut off an oil flow, which might in turn compel Canada to cut off the arms flow. But if there was a stronger social movement in all this, you know, it was four years ago that this deal to supply these armed vehicles to Saudi Arabia was announced. And the activism that's taken place, by and large, has either been in the pages of the Golden Mail or through the press releases of NGOs like Amnesty International and Project Plowshares in Canada. But like that, that's just not enough to compel like political leadership to, to take a decision like cancelling an arms export. There's also been a court case significantly out of the University of Montreal where you were just visiting. Daniel Turf has taken it right to the federal court in an attempt to put a halt on these arms exports, including references to the evidence that these have been used in Yemen. And the court, the courts find this argument compelling enough that the case, uh, at least one of the cases, has been proceeding. But unfortunately, the media doesn't find it quite compelling enough to make, again, you know, to return this issue of Yemen, to make that one of the key issues here that should cause the public to look look more closely at uh, Canada's sort of deepening, what's been a deepening relationship with not just Saudi Arabia, but the rest of the Gulf states. United Arab Emirates is uh, Canada's number one ally in the region. There's been talk in the media about like Saudi Arabia's gone full Qatar on uh, on Canada as a result of this, but that's that couldn't be further from the truth. I mean, in some sense, you can obviously see the parallels. Like Qatar's been under this blockade for well over a year from Saudi Arabia and the United Emirates and Egypt. But if if it were to get to the point where the Emirates were to do to Canada what Saudi has just done to them, then uh, you would see even more frantic attempt because uh, there's a lot of direct investment in Canada. There's tens of thousands of Canadians who live inside the United Arab Emirates. That would just take it up to a, to a level where you would see expedited the, the effort to restore the relations. So I don't see the solution in sight, but I think that they're working pretty feverishly behind the scenes 
uh, especially where Canadian capital, Canadian uh, ruling elites are, uh, as they have in the past when there have been crises like these going back to the 1970s, they organize in their own interests, they know who to call in Ottawa, and they know whose feathers to unruffle in Saudi Arabia, and they're probably working on getting that done. I would be surprised if that didn't happen in the next few days, week or so. So as you mentioned, your research uh, has been largely on the Canadian relationship with the Gulf uh, countries such as Saudi Arabia. Uh, but I also know that you are very attuned to military movements and the sort of the political economy of the military industrial complex in Saudi Arabia and Yemen. You know, I, I know that there's been at least one bill that uh, some Democrats and Republicans have been trying to raise to end the U.S. support for the Saudi war in Yemen that has not had much support. Could you speak at all about the U.S. role in the Saudi-led war in Yemen and its consequences and any political movements to respond to that? Yeah, you've definitely seen, surprisingly, you know, perhaps a movement within the U.S. Senate, a couple of prominent senators and congressmen who've spoken out about the U.S. continuing U.S. role, advising the Saudi Arabia coalition, like I said before, you know, supply, you know, literally like refueling their in midair their their craft bombers, their the Royal Saudi Air Force as well as UAE, and who knows, like the degree that, as far as we know, there are U.S. special operations forces on the ground that have conducted operations in yeah inside Yemen, ostensibly in the in the separate fight against uh, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, but they're there nonetheless and have been. Of course, there's the drone bases nearby and the drone attacks that have been uh, perpetrated on the country. It's important, you know, to support you know these movements inside the government that uh, are afoot to scale back or halt U.S. support. But no, there's no sign that these are these are going to happen, right? They get voted down. Um, they seem, if anything, to have doubled down on uh, support for the war in Yemen and uh, in, in the regional conflict in general. And this is, of course, there's so many precedents for this. But all, all we can do, all you can suggest that people in the U.S. do is continue to, to mobilize the types of movements that make that make the most noise and make make this a, a war that's too costly to continue to support. There's no end in sight for this war. It's three and a half years long. The protracted struggle could go on for another three to five years. Who knows? Uh, I mean, there are on again, off again efforts to mediate this, to negotiate this. I, I know from the the Yemeni rebel side that, it, that they don't see the UN faith, acting in good faith. Kind of see the UN who have basically legit, legitimized the Saudi-led coalition's war and what appears to be an illegitimate war. I mean, when that airstrike happened the other day, the U.S. supported the, there was a U.S. bomb fragments that appear to have been discovered that bombed this school bus. Nobody, uh, nobody denounced this. Well, but that's an important point. So there's evidence that the bombs that killed those, you know, 30-some children on a school bus uh, were American-made weapons. Is that, is that confirmed? Yeah, that's, these are the images that have been tweeted out. Um, and yeah, that's that's not surprising, right? It's the U.S. and the U.K. in particular that provide them with this these types of means to conduct this war. And it's like, yeah, the, I was going to get back to the historical example. You know, it's, it's like Noel Chomsky and others have said, right? Like this war could end tomorrow if the U.S. decided they wanted it to. They could stop supporting the war itself, could, could themselves cancel hundreds of billions of dollars worth of contracts that just continually resupply and embolden and enlarge the, these these GCs, these Gulf Cooperation Council uh, militaries, that could put an end to it. But they don't. They're deciding, you know, for whatever strategic ends they have in mind, that this is a war they decide they're going to help to prolong. And uh, there's the paucity of media coverage of the war in Yemen. The, the awareness of the uh, U.S. is probably no less than the awareness of Canada as far as their government's role in that war goes. And so, but the, we're in an we're in, we're in an era where 
the types of social movements that you would need to put the kind of pressure on uh, the media to report it, on, on the government to, 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 to take action, to get out of that war, uh, just are nowhere to be seen. And that's, that's, that's really disturbing, probably one of the more disturbing things about this, because you feel, you feel powerlessness when we need to be empowering ourselves and building the types of movements that strongly oppose these wars. You know, and I think in the U.S. we've seen how Trump was enamored with his visit with Saudi leadership. And I think in general with wealthy autocrats, he seems sees a natural alliance. But I think getting more to the point, why is the most or the wealthiest nation in the region bombing the poorest nation in the region, Yemen, uh, to the point where children are dying of starvation? Why is that, uh, you know, a priority of the Saudi leadership? Yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> a very good question. The uh, this, of course, is a historic conflict, right? Like where you know there's there's a, an ebb and a flow to with regard to Saudi, in particular involvement. You know, you have going back to the Civil War, of the 1960s, right, where you end up having that was actually Canada's first toehold in in the region was when they sent peacekeepers to to try and um, keep Egypt and Saudi Arabia. And there, and there's you know silent U.S. or Israeli or U or U.K. partners from escalating the war at that time. But at that time, and since then, right? Like the, I almost see like I've said this before. Like Yemen, Yemen is almost like the you know the Haiti of the Middle East, right? You have the here you have a poorest country in that part of the world, Haiti being the poorest country in, in in this hemisphere, but constantly beat up on, and constantly there's this assumption that you can outside stronger powers can just can just impose their will uh, on them whenever they see fit. And yet, like Haiti, Yemen always just resists. Just, they just have this built-in ability to resist these, this type of foreign uh, intervention. Um, on the one hand, right, they're, they're, of course, like their argument for why they're, they're there is to restore the presidency of uh, Hadi, um, he was a longtime vice president of Sa- uh, President Saleh, who was basically uh, president for several decades until he was ousted by popular uh, uprising in 2011, handed over power to Hadi. Hadi was moment for, for a moment forced to resign. He did resign, but then they kind of rescinded that resignation. Uh, he fled to Saudi Arabia in, in March of 2015, and the very next day the bombing uh, happened. They, they, they claimed to have legitimacy to that there was a plan right there there was a transition plan that had been ostensibly agreed to by uh, the houthis and uh, the the uh, the saudi backed uh, hadi faction and uh, they're saying that you know we're we're just restoring legit but the you know, operation restoring legitimacy and so unfortunately for them right there's also the question of the south, south yemen the uae is more or less taking responsibility for the south but and there's, you know, there's, there's all sorts of theories afoot as to what the long-term plan is, right? To capture the many resources, to divide the country once again, uh, in the north and south, uh, where you have sort of a UAE zone of uh, influence and power, and then the Saudi zone. But the fact of the matter is, at least on paper, they're, you know, they're claiming that they're, they're trying to retake the country to restore Hadi to power, and that the war is not going to end until then, and that through they feel through uh, through Hadi is is their representative of who's somebody who can carry out their interests, whatever those may be in terms of like maintaining a certain uh, stability and then going proceeding from there. Who knows what their long term plans really are for Yemen? Well, and from the American side, you can see U.S. politicians and spokespeople 
using the logic of war uh, against Iran, that this is sort of a proxy war against Iran, who's on the side of the Houthi rebels. How relevant is the Iranian role? Do you have a sense of that in this war? Yeah, it's probably uh, both more and less re- relevant than they would have you believe. The Saudi Arabia, for example, would have you believe. I mean, when you when you read like the Canadian, you know, Canada always just has like small discussions of the conflict in like briefing documents that I'll I'll try and get, for example, from through acts, you know, freedom of information request, and they'll speak quite candidly about how this is this is not uh, an Iran versus Saudi proxy war. That this is a legit, Houthis in particular. It's like it's a, it's a local struggle. Yeah, it's a local struggle. It's an indigenous uh, movement. Yes, there's probably material. In fact, I, no one would dispute there's material support coming from somewhere inside Iran. Uh, but this is not by no means is an Iran-led proxy war. But that is, that's what, of course, Saudi Arabia and UAE w- would like us to believe, that they're not only fighting to restore Hadi, but they're fighting against uh, Iran. To, to fight back against Iranian uh, influence in their backyard. It's kind of absurd. Like, when you look at the disproportionate nature of, like, the weaponry involved, um, most of, probably a lot of the, the, the Houthi uh, arms uh, that are of any, like, good quality have come from seizing them from the Saudi Arabians when they, when they overrun their, uh, their bases and, you know, and, uh, along the border and so forth. But that's the narrative they want us to believe. And uh, who knows, aspects of the Saudi leadership, royal family may very well convince themselves that that's what we're doing. Because, you know, you, you look at the, the propaganda, um, there's like, a, they're very sophisticated with their, their sort of the military and the war propaganda on social media. There's clearly like an importance that they put on like maintaining a, a certain like morale and fighting spirit, like in and through their propaganda um, you know, that filters through the Saudi uh, forces that are fighting this war. And so, like, these kind of messages aren't only for Western world's consumption that we're fighting, we're putting down Iran, but, like, for internally to, to maintain morale and to, uh, and so whether they're true or not, uh, they take on a life of their own. But I think, uh, ultimately, you know, the, uh, th- there's got to be some ground given in terms of negotiating, right? This, this is a war that will only just keep continuing to be a stalemate, uh, as far as anyone can tell. And uh, the... You know they've got somebody's got to bring these 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 parties together uh, to the table, and uh, but part of that, like they have to seize this foreign intervention there, and like specifically the overwhelming Saudi-led side of the foreign intervention, because you know whatever supposed Iranian influence there is would disappear the moment Saudi-led uh, coalition stopped bombing. Well, anything else you want to um, make a point of that we haven't yet about, you know, North American role in the region and the war that's going on right now? Yeah, just that, uh, I mean, like you said, I think earlier, the, uh, this was an opportunity to shine a light on and to, and, to, and to ask questions and have discussions, of course, like, right, like, why does the West continue to prop up these hereditary ruling families uh, throughout this re- particular region of the Middle East? And it's like, this is a good opportunity, a golden opportunity. There may not, there's never been an opportunity like it, and there may never be again, uh, especially here in Canada, to to have this discussion. It's like why why do we why do we bother? If 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 what you say is true that oh Canada is a feminist foreign policy and is about you know we will stand up for human rights, then like the obvious question is, then why not just accept the cutting off of all ties and just learn to live without them, and then you can actually be in a position where you can speak even more strongly 
Um, but I mean, that's just not the reality and that's not the case. And the, those bigger questions aren't, aren't like kind of like the Yemen question aren't being discussed and, uh, and yet they need to, right. I mean, as one of my favorite, the, the, one of the titles of my favorite books was, uh, you know, Fred Halliday's Arabia without Sultans, right? Well, he wrote that in the seventies and it's one of the most prescient and, and, and most informative books about the region uh, ever been written. And yet here we have Arabia still filled with sultans, right? And so when when is that when is that configuration going to change? When are movements? Because let's let's be clear also, but this move by Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia is as much a move to send a message internally, right? To the 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 whatever change is happening in Saudi Arabia is is going to happen at the pace that I dictate, et cetera. Um, they don't tolerate any threats to their rule for good reason. Um, but they certainly, the any, any potential movement or existing movement, existing under, underground, whatever, would certainly have a great deal more space to operate if Western countries were to have these dialogues and were to open up and, and, and discuss and, and perhaps end these kind of ties, support for the propping up of these dictatorships, right? So these are the questions we wish we could see discussed, and we can only try and you know, do our small part to uh, make them happen. Bet. And whenever I have someone on the show, I like to get a cultural recommendation, either an album, a book, uh, a work of art, a performance that you would recommend to me and my audience that we might not be aware of otherwise. I would stick with the theme, and I would in- I would encourage people to read another one that like one of the more recent uh, books on the on the topic by Adam Hania, who. Uh, book Kaliji Capital. He looks at the he looks at how capitalism has shaped the Gulf over the last you know few decades up to you know mid 2010 2011. Uh, he 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 like me went to York University. He's based in London now, but his his book is kind of a model for for how I'm shaping my own project. And uh, but he's uh, has a really good analysis of, of Saudi Arabia to understand. It's not just about also just not about Wahhabi religion, Islam. Also, very much as, as Fred Halliday himself would have agreed, I'm sure, uh, about how capitalism has shaped these uh, states and how Western and how the West in turn has has uh, helped shape the formation of capitalism inside these countries. And uh, yeah, so there you go. Adam Hania's uh, book on the Gulf is a, is a key one that I would, I would point to. Well, thanks so much for your time and for joining us on Shailanana Radio. And good luck with the rest of your uh, research. Absolutely. Thank you so much. Take care, son. Uh, the media sin is repeated offenses The biggest ventures of the week And the streets is feeding agendas While they reaching for extensions They keeping attention They bleed a magenta Ain't no peace The police is deep in contention Singing the innocent drop in And big in the boxes We singing the toxic Ways of all of the villainous popping What's the synopsis? Cease fire on your brothers Put that energy in something worth loving The balance Never got our 40 acres So you know we steal them Never learn to love our neighbors So you know we kill them Self-hate got us out here setting death dates In a prison well paid Screaming that we self-made Don't you understand this is chess doesn't checkmate And they love to catch us and slave us with a cellmate It's a massacre, I just speak the truth like a pastor does I lost my brother to my shit and blood Rest in peace Mel, die from the heat shells You in God's hands so you still beat hell It's real how it goes down Cold in these streets still, selling these soul now It's something like retail, that's why I speak peace I'ma tell the streets reach higher Drug murderers to retire I'ma do this till I'm covered in dirt and meet sire It's the movement in the verse, tell them cease fire Product of this environment, cycle after cycle Dream to play in ball, could've been the next Michael All the next Obama 
drama See he really was a scholar Made a promise to his mama If he made it out of college Changed the world and shipped the mountains Just to get her out the projects Born in 99, read a zoology Another black body on an Insta feed Hashtag ceasefire, rest in peace Rest in peace TT, thank you for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, so that uh, track, uh, it was killing me. We cut into it because it's really probably the dopest track of last year that people haven't been listening to uh, with Von Vargas, uh, Martina Lynch, whose lines on that uh, really just uh, blew me away. Black Star, Greenspan, Ill Conscious. How did you get involved in that track and, and what was that experience like for you? Um, well, Vaughn reached out to me and he said that he was getting ready to do this kind of all-star lineup of local Baltimore um, musicians. And so, of course, it was a no-brainer. I just hopped on it, dropped a few bars. Um, it was really collaborative in a sense where we kind of didn't know. It was like playing Exquisite Corpse with music. So it was like, you know, they passed you. You didn't know who said what and what the subject matter um, from the other artists was going to be. But I kind of just took my own spin on it and um, sent them the vocals back. And then voila. And Von Vargas did a, a really good job bringing it together because I find it really compelling. And it's different narratives, different styles that come together to give this really amazing representation of Baltimore hip hop that's uh really teaming up with a movement in the city to try to end violence and try to celebrate life. So that's why I wanted to bring you here and shine a light on the work you're doing. Um, I also saw you in Darley Park last year, which is this little community park in northeast Baltimore. And uh, I was surprised to see such an amazing show in a little corner park that I'd never been in before. Can you just tell us real quick how you ended up bringing together that uh, music and dance choreography in that little corner of Baltimore? So um, a lot of people don't know, but I do have an organization called Artist Land Productions, and it's basically um, the umbrella that I put all my community work in. You know, I have a big background in community arts and working in the creative field and nonprofit world. So I teamed up with a friend of mine named Whitney Frazier, who is a community artist based in Baltimore, and she showed me Dolly Park and how they're getting ready to do some renovations and they reached out to me because they wanted to do a big outdoor um, opening and it was great because it was right along the time they were doing Baltimore Light City which is an outdoor um, multimedia festival and so it was awesome that I got a chance to be a part of it and they asked me to coordinate the music and talent it's one of the things I love to do and so we got involved with Be More Than Dance and TSU Dance Crew which are two amazing dance organizations in Baltimore City and you know, we made it happen. It was great to see those kids out there. I had so much fun doing it. It was a lot of fun. It was a cold day, but the quality of the performance was just um, incredible. And actually, what I realized when I was parking my car to go to that show, the only time that I'd ever been on that block before was um, when I was doing a sacred space ritual with Baltimore Ceasefire. And that's where whenever someone has been uh, killed um, by violence in the city, uh, we go and try to be present in that space, do a prayer, do a ritual, say their name. And I had done that just down the street from that park a couple of months before you did that show. So it really resonated with me, and I really appreciated it. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to bring you on the show today um, and shine a light on uh, not only your community work you're doing, but professionally you're blowing up right now. I heard you on Insecure last week. I heard you on saw Yara Shahidi dancing to you on Grownish last season. <laughs> And uh, I know you've been dropping teasers for this movie, Dark City Beneath the Beat. Do you want to talk about that at all? Yeah. Um, so Dark City Beneath the Beat is my first independent 
feature film that I am, you know, entering the film world as a director. So first time directing a feature film, not first time directing. I've directed many of my music videos and it's kind of fun because this film allows me to get to play with the traditional um, techniques of documentary and storytelling, but also mix that with a very um, fantasy and uh, music video aesthetic. So uh, the film is a musical documentary about the rising Baltimore club music and dance culture. Uh, we're looking at premiering it in 2019 and wrapping the film up this year. And hopefully we'll get to do a few private screenings prior to that. We'd really like to get it in the um cinema festivals and you know film festivals just really want to set it up where this film is about you know shedding light on a positive culture happening in baltimore which is the baltimore club music and dance culture as well as profiling baltimore as a city and the talent that's coming out of baltimore uh, bet and uh the trailer that you dropped so far not only is the choreography uh really impressive but I thought cinema, cinematographically it was really well done, so I'm super excited. Thank you so and much. I'm excited about the work you're doing. Um, and uh, you were telling me you just dropped uh, a new single, uh, Payroll. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, I just dropped a new single called Payroll. The video is streaming now on YouTube and also at Lady Gun. Um it's a really awesome female woman empowerment anthem all about, you know, being a boss, owning owning things and getting your money, you know. So it's like shout out to Stars. He's a artist featured on it and shout out to Mighty Mark on the production. But it's available on all digital retailers now and definitely check out the video. We want to get those numbers up. All right. Hopefully we'll play into that as uh, at the end of our um, interview. But uh, I wanted to talk about uh, also you have a new record label is that right club queen records yeah club queen records so um on top of all the projects i have going on um i'm gearing up for the debut release on my first label uh club queen records which is a digital record label um that specifically releases exclusive music releases by women specifically a premier platform for women of color in hip-hop dance and R&B musical genres is really just you know a platform where I felt like in Baltimore I was starting to get um, a lot of recognition for kind of you know being a voice for the city and not just a regular voice but a woman in this business and a black woman at that and you know I was really inspired by what DJ K Swift started you know as she was globalizing the Baltimore club music sound um, and just club queens in general is not about TT the artist but it's about women that are owning and running the music game and us coming together and collaborating and you know when I initially set out to do this I knew the legacy that fell behind it and the, the reference and I was like you know I would hate for this to end up in the wrong hands and I said well, you know hip hop is such a, a commercialized um, genre of music now you know that's really black you know what I'm saying and I just want to have a platform where we have the first dibs of taking ownership of our labels our sounds and it's just time that we shift that narrative of you know not a, not enough support for women artists who are in who exist in different spectrums of the music atmosphere so that's what club queens records is about and you know we about to drop our first project which is actually the best of both worlds jersey club meets baltimore club um featuring my girl unique so me and unique uh, representing for the Jersey and Baltimore Club, and we joined up and linked up, and this project is dropping on August 31st, Club Queens, the EP, Part 1, and you know it's going to be crazy. And, you know, I appreciate the reference. Uh, K. Swift was not murdered, but she died uh, from a traumatic injury, 
And uh, I've been saying that I feel like Baltimore is haunted, um, both by this unrecognized history that is, you know, behind and underneath all of our interactions, and also the people who are gone too soon. Um, and I think Kay Swift is one of them. Um, and so all respect due to the legend of Baltimore club music, K-Swift, but now I feel like... The first club queen Yes, ever. indeed. But, it, but you are now the reigning queen of Baltimore club music. Is that fair to say? I mean, I don't even want to like put the title on me. I, I really, I, where I'm at with it is I want all the girls that's running the clubs to know that they're queens. And so it's just, you put those two words together, I just feel like it's the epitome of the movement of where music is going right now. So let's just start taking ownership of it and just you know let's start showing people what we're really about you know because we got this you know women are are so powerful and we can hang with the boys we got heartbeats just like the boys and you know we're gonna shake it up um so you know we're uh live on the air in washington dc i know we're also blowing up your social media oh, yeah. right now What's that? <laughs> uh, but also what else you got going on in the baltimore dc area coming up you want to let people know about um you actually i have a live performance coming up this saturday uh with red bull and fico which is a social project that red bull is doing uh, inside of baltimore where they're bringing entrepreneurs together and artists and i'll be performing at the block party happening this Saturday. Um, I go on around nine o'clock, I believe. And they are featuring DJ Diamond Cuts, DJ Troll Nature, and then a whole lot of boss women on the lineup. It's going to be so fun. So you guys got to come out. It's going to be at the Hollins Market in Baltimore. Nice. And um, I was asking you about this. Maybe you want to talk about it on the air. This distance between Baltimore Club and DC Go Go music. Are you a fan of DC Go Go music? Oh yeah, I mean I love any music that kind of. I enjoy music that has a vibe to it that gets you feeling good. You know, there's something interesting about dance music, Go Go music, club music. Like, it's it's meant to get you moving. You right. know what I mean? You could be having a bad day, but then when you hear the drums come in and the horns and the you know percussion, and you're just kind of like instantly in a better mood. And I think that's the power of music. All right, and uh, so. Don't be afraid of go-go music if you're from Baltimore and <laughs> D.C. Open up to Baltimore Club Music, T.T. the Artist. And anything you want to say before we wrap up? Um, you know, you can all follow me at T.T. the Artist and, you know, Club Queen Records, Dark City Beneath the Beat. It's all coming, man. Let's stay connected. New video out, payroll. Make sure you go see that on YouTube. And yeah. uh, if you haven't heard that uh, Baltimore Ceasefire track from Von Vargas, Go online and listen to it right now. It is the most slept on track of the last year, in my opinion. Um, and before we wrap up, hopefully we'll, we'll close out to uh, a playing of that payroll, of a clip of that payroll song. Thanks for joining us on Knife at the Gunfight. This will be the last episode of Season 2 as I am moving to Brooklyn to start up a new position as a trauma surgeon and surgical intensivist. So while I focused on my craft, I'll take a 6-12 to 12 month sabbatical from my work on the podcast. But hope to see you again in 2019 and thanks again for your support. Boy, I 
to cause you're perfect, ayy. Shake it for me, mama, it's your birthday, ayy. Stunting on these th- cause they lurking, ayy. Booty's getting big, but you getting bigger. Do it on your own, cause you don't need no new. Unless she want the D, I might just sing it to her. Ride my pony, if she like it, I might sing it to her. When shorty on the block, then the block hot In the hood with the dealers at the dope spots Spent some money on the girl and I ain't seen her since I call her phone every day and then she tell me this Boy, I don't love you, I be lying Hey, bro, get the paper all the time I just tell you that so you can rack it up You just tell me that cause you just tryna f- Boy, I don't love you, I be lying Hey, bro, get the paper all the time I just tell you that so you can rack it up You just tell me that cause you just tryna f- Boy, you tried it, Get the paper all the time. Hey, roll, get the paper all the time.